The reading is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Good morning. Nice to see you and a very warm welcome to Holy Trinity, especially if it's your first time. Hope it's not your last time. And if you're a returnee, well done, good choice. Uh, my name is Rupert Charkham, I'm the vicar here. And before I say any more, let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for your word, which we've just had read to us. And our prayer, Lord, is that you would open our hearts and our minds to you. Draw us closer to you. Give us insight into you and your ways. And come and fill us with your hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our morning sermon series is all about hope. And this morning, I'm going to be talking about finding hope in God's family. But I want to start with a question. And the question is, if I were able to ask you, what would you say your most treasured possession is? What is your most treasured possession? One way that I've heard people winkle this out for themselves is something like this. So if there's a fire in your house, what would you run to rescue or want to be saved? Well, I'm going to share a secret with you. There's a program on TV that I, on TV that I like watching. I'm slightly shy about telling you what it is, because it's so lame. And that's probably why I like it. I like it because you can watch this program and it makes no demands upon you at all. And, and nothing bad ever really happens it's the Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> and I, I, I'm sort of going off the Antiques Roadshow because many of the artifacts that are presented to the experts were made in my lifetime. And, <laughs> and I just don't like the insinuation. But every so often, of course, the crunch moment comes in the Antiques Roadshow when the expert looks at whatever it is they've been given to examine and they declare its value. You know, for insurance purposes, this is worth X. And every so often, there is an incredible discovery. So it's like a doorstop, which was in the shape of an owl, was discovered to be worth millions of pounds. And on another occasion, there was what turned out to be an Egyptian artifact, which was hung on the wall of a school next to a dartboard. And it had all these the darts, which had missed the dartboard, and landed in it. And, and that artifact was worth over seven million pounds. and It is possible that we walk past a treasure or we have a treasure, a 
treasure in our hands, and we just undervalue it hugely. I don't have to ask God what his most treasured possession is, because he's told us. It would be very, very difficult for us to work it out, because we're told that the whole earth is his, and it all belongs to him. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. That's a poetic way of saying the same thing. But he tells us that his treasured possession are the people that love him and follow him. So just think of it this way. If Jesus came to Cambridge and he was giving someone a guided tour, he wouldn't take them to the Fitzwilliam Museum and show them the prices aren't there. He wouldn't take them to the Cavendish laboratories. He wouldn't take them to read Winnie the Pooh in the library or to discover Oliver Cromwell's head, all of which can be found in Cambridge. He would point out the people who know him as a friend and who worship him and say, these are my treasured possession. And one of the reasons that he treasures us is because we bring hope. People who bump into Jesus had hope. People who bump into his followers meet with hope. The early Christians were reminded by Paul, you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. And if you ask me, what's your favorite or a favorite, not my favorite, because I don't have one favorite, but a favorite passage in scripture, which you treasure, this passage we're looking at today, Acts 2, 42 to 47, is one of my tops. There are advantages to being the vicar. You can set your own preaching passages. And I want to ask you to turn to it, Acts 2, 42 to 47, because in these verses, in what turns out to be a little cameo sketch, a window into the world of uh, early church, we discover the sources, five sources, of enormous hope. Every single one of these brings massive hope, and we're going to dig into them and find out what they are. And the very first one is this, the Word of God. If you look at verse 42, you can't miss it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. While we're on this treasure business, I love it that when the queen was enthroned in Coronation Day, I'm not so ancient that I was alive then, but I have read about it and I have seen it because the BBC loved to show it. You know, Britain in all its splendor and pageantry and age of empire all upon one moment. And the Queen has the crown jewels taken out of the Tower of London and placed on her head. She has the world's biggest diamond on her head. She has an orb and a scepter in her hands. She has all the peers of the realm right in front of her. And at the climax of the service, a, a funny old man, well, not that funny, but he was certainly old, the Archbishop of Canterbury, dodders forward, and on a cushion is a book. And he tells the queen this. 
we present you with this book. The most valuable thing this world offers. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. And there you have it. The most valuable thing. The word of God, which you and I can own. And if you don't own a Bible and you'd like to read it, you can take the one that's on your lap home with you. Why is the Word of God so valuable? How does it link to hope? Well, it's so valuable because through the Word of God, God reveals himself to us. He tells us what he's like. There's no way that you and I can guess what God is like. You can have a guess, but left to your own devices, you'll get it wrong. Because scripture tells us that God says to us, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. This book leads us into his company. Faith comes through hearing the word of God. This is a Jesus I can believe in. The more you get to know his word, the closer you will get to him. And through that will come hope. I've got so many quotations in my quotation index all about the importance of God's word. Some of them are very, very eloquent. Some of them are very poetic. But I've chosen for one that's contemporary and just unbelievably real. And it's written by a guy called Andy and Mike. And Andy used to sit in this church down there, only where the kitchen now is under the balcony. And uh, this is what he read. If we're really honest, we often struggle to read the Bible ourselves. But we've discovered in our own feeble way that we abandon this book at our peril. We've discovered the Bible is the book of truth and the book of life. It feeds us, it challenges us, it guides us and it comforts us. But more than anything else, the Bible points us beyond itself to its author. It points beyond itself to God. To put it bluntly, it's very hard to get to know God without reading the Bible. Little by little, as we resource ourselves through this book and get connected to God, hope is restored. Hope is birthed in us. Separate yourself from God's word and you sever the cords of hope. Join yourself to it and you're joined by hope. Now, it just might be, so I'll mention it in passing, that there's someone here who has never read any of the Bible. And it can be a very difficult book to know where do you start, how do I begin. And I would just say, the first book I read of the Bible to explore whether God existed or not was John's Gospel. I didn't start at the beginning with Genesis. I started because a friend told me a good place to start. Just read through John's Gospel. And ask yourself as you read it, who is this Jesus person? Little by little, step by step, God leads us closer to him. That's the very first lever of hope. The second one mentioned in this passage is, if we'd have joined this community, we would have discovered that worship was at the heart of this church. Every day they met together in the temple courts, we're told, verse 46. 
and they met together in their homes. And whenever they met, they met, if you like, to enthrone God or to magnify him, to focus on him. If you hung out with these people, you couldn't help but realize that they were people who knew God. They were sincere in what they were up to. Now, I think the word worship is a bit off-putting. I find it off-putting. It sounds very alien. I think a knee-jerk reaction is, look, hang on, I don't think I worship anything. I'm just not the religious sort, that kind of reaction. I don't do worship, whatever that is. But in point of fact, we all do worship. It's just a question of discovering what it is that we worship. I think I would describe worship as worship is where our devotion goes. And we're all devoted to something. And here's how you find out what you're devoted to. Ask someone who knows you really well, because you won't be honest with yourself, so that's why you've got to ask someone else. Audit where your time goes. Spend a moment to think, what do I spend my energy on? Where does my money go? What do I spend my time thinking about? What do I talk about most? And when you put all those things together, you will have discovered where your worship is invested. And when we make Jesus the focus of our worship, then we are connecting with God's purpose for our life. And it's not as easy as it sounds. There is definitely a paradox about this. Because, as one prayer puts it, it's in his service that we find freedom. And who would have thought by giving yourself away, you would discover freedom? But what's the hallmark of their worship was it was worship with integrity. It was sincere. The opposite of worshipping with integrity is hypocrisy. And the word hypocrite stems from a, a Greek word which comes from the land of theatre. Apparently, the Grecians, when they put on a play, the actors would appear before a clay mask. And um, I googled it, and there are some very good pictures on Google Image of what those kind of masks look like. They're rather clumsy, and they're not very attractive. And it was very obvious that the actors, you never saw their face. You just heard a voice behind a mask. Jesus had tremendously scathing things to say to people who tried to worship God behind a mask. Because what God wants is sincere hearts. What he wants to see is an integrated life. What's going on on the outside is what's going on on the inside. And when you encounter that amongst the people of God, it's very powerful because it's genuine. And many has been the person actually who's come into this church and said, I came in because of the sound I could hear outside. I don't really understand what you're doing here. I didn't expect to find a crowded church. But I can see that you guys are sincere, that you mean what you sing, and I can sense something, I can't really explain it. It could be the presence of God. And when people discover the presence of God, hope is birthed. Now, it's not easy. Because everything about us 
We don't want to make ourselves small and make God great. There's a part of us that actually would like to be on the throne, as it were. But part of our devotion and our worship is bowing before the Lord and saying, you have a right to be Lord over my life. The very first commandment of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. And when you plug into that, hope is birthed. Then there's a third component of this community of God's treasured possession, and it shrieks at you from this passage. It's, I can find love here. This is a group of people that if I join them, they will accept me. They will welcome me. They will love me. And it's made all the more amazing because as I read the New Testament through, it becomes very clear that the collection of people that were gathered together in God's family were an unlikely lot. They didn't look like potential best friends. They didn't look like friends at all. They were hodgepodge. There were some rich, there were some poor, there were some black, there were some white, there were some slaves, there were some free people, there were men and there were women, there were different races, and they all got on together. In fact, they got on so extraordinarily well, their commitment was so extraordinary that a new word had to be invented to describe how they related. The ordinary word for love was not enough. And they coined a new word, agape, which meant these people have learned to love people they didn't even like. And if you want an example of that, you don't have to look any further than the Apostle Paul, who when he first became a follower of Jesus, they didn't think it was safe to let him join the group at all, but by the end, he was welcomed wherever he went. I think this is an incredibly powerful and important role for us as God's people, God's treasure in Cambridge. Because the truth is, right up and down the land, people feel more and more and more and more alienated from one another. Less and less confident they'll be welcomed anywhere. So unsure of how to join a community where you can just get on and have a conversation and chat and be liked, let alone loved. And that's a cue for me just to mention in passing. If you're not in a small group, whether it's risky living group or an adult house group, you're missing out. Because this kind of friendship, it, it's offered on a plate amongst the people of God. But you need to be close enough to people for them to love you and close enough to others that you can love them. And simply rocking up on a Sunday won't do it. I'm so encouraged that at the end of last year, uh, the student team asked some of the students if they would just care to jot down uh, anything they wanted to say about the community of God's family here at HT. And I'm just going to read you a few of these testimonies because it's, it's a fulfillment of what God says he'd like his family to be. I've never met so many people so like Jesus as I have since becoming a member of Holy Trinity. I never felt closer to God, more myself or more comfortable in my own skin. And I want to say thanks. Someone else. Since coming to HT, I've come much closer to the truth that I am a child of God. 
And with this comes freedom in knowing there's nothing I need to do or anywhere I need to go to earn acceptance, as the Father's love is freely given to me, and that will never change. Sounds good. Mm, I'm glad I'm part of this church. <laughs> Another one. HT has honestly been the most transformational part of my time at university. I'm glad. That's how it should be. And the fourth driver in this dynamic community was very obviously the Holy Spirit. This is a Pentecostal outfit. This group of people are fired up, fueled up, and propelled and inspired by the Holy Spirit. This description comes just days, as it were, after the outpouring of the Spirit. And it's the only way I can think of to explain the transformation of, say, a guy like Peter, who had been so unable to talk about Jesus just before the crucifixion. You remember, he denied Jesus. He was a kind of foot-in-mouth disciple. And now, after Pentecost, he talks in the open market square and 3,000 people come to the Lord. Why? Was it because he was so compelling in his oratory? No, it wasn't that. Was it because he was so forceful in what he had to say? No, it wasn't that. He was faithful to a message, but the Holy Spirit just inspired what's going on. And where the Spirit is, there's hope. Everyone was filled with awe at the miracles that took place. There's excitement. There's contagion. There is, I want to be there when the Holy Spirit's around. Many of us in this building know exactly what I'm talking about. You've sniffed the presence of the Holy Spirit and you thought, yes, bring it on. And, and that's exactly how it should be. There is a tingle factor to the presence of God. Now, before we get to the fifth and final component of this irresistible and transformative community, I want to press pause for one second. A kind of reality check. I want to raise something that we just need to address. Because if the community described in this book was so attractive, and it was, and if everything that they did then is available to us today, and it is, why are there not more communities like this? Is it really as simple as you're saying, Rupert? Or is there something you haven't told us? There is. Every component comes at a price. Individually, they are so valuable, they really are, and in a sense, they're given free. But in another sense, they cost you everything. And the last one we haven't even got to costs the most, even though it's the most rewarding. So let's do a quick review and see what I mean. To connect with God's word, for it to take root in your heart, it's going to take a lifelong commitment, what's been called a long obedience in the same direction. It simply will not wash for you to say to yourself, well, I used to be a faithful disciple. 15 years ago, if God spoke to me, I said yes. And in fact, the last time he spoke to me was 10 years ago. It's not good enough. But that is many people's position, and here's why, because it is so challenging. There are some times when God's word definitely comforts me, and comforts you, I'm sure. I am really grateful that when I wake up in the middle of the night, which I seem to be doing quite often, too often to my liking, that I 
have God's word, as it were, hidden in my heart. I, I do meditate on it. It is a comfort to me. I feel secure in the cradle of God's love. I know how to shelter in the shadow of God's wings. I know what it's like for God to give me his peace, even in the middle of difficulties. I'm so glad for God's word. But there'll also be times when God's word won't be like that at all. It will rock your boat rather than calm your boat. You'll be challenged. You'll be corrected. You'll be called to repent. Because God is intent on making us more like him. And he's going to knock out of us the bits which don't bring him pleasure. And that's a lifelong process. He needs to be able to say, Rupert, this bit of you needs to be reshaped, to be conformed into my likeness. That's what holiness is. And it's costly to say, yes, Lord, when he speaks. But to say, no, Lord, is a contradiction in terms. And I want to really alarm you. I want you to know you don't read this book to get through this book. You read this book to get this book through you. You don't read this book with your fingers in your ears and with your heart hardened and braced, ready to say no. We as a church are committed to saying, yes, Lord. We're on a journey together. We've decided together a long time ago that week by week by week by week, we're going to encourage each other to say, Lord, we come under your word. Lord, we want to be more like you. We want you to know we're obedient to you. That's how you plug into hope. Or take the business of worship. God being at the center of a worshiping community. You know, there's a very challenging little moment at the end of a book of Chronicles when King David asks one of the people for their field. And the guy says, you can have it. And David says, no, I don't want it as a gift. I want to pay you good money for it. And this is why he says, I won't take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. Worship has to cost us something. Worship means worth-ship. If our worship costs us nothing, it's worth nothing. It has cost built in. Sometimes just the cost of discipline of worship. There will be days, there will be days when the last thing on earth you feel like doing is giving God your time and actually stopping before him and making him Lord of your life. But that's our commitment. Every day I will praise you. Every day I will serve you. Every day I will say I offer you my soul and bodies to be a living sacrifice, to live and work to your praise and glory. And the odd thing is that as you do that every day, it's like the theme tune changes and morphs and it becomes a song of praise in which we say, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior every day long. And it's precisely this cost of worship that defines us and refines our love for the Lord because he's worth it.
or take the move of the Spirit. I love it when the Holy Spirit moves, but it's costly. He's not a gentle little stream that you can manipulate at the end of your garden. He's like a roaring torrent that will sweep you along, or a blazing fire that you can't control. So it takes a degree of commitment and guts to say, Lord, bring it on, have your way. But why wouldn't you when you know that the Holy Spirit comes from a good God? Well, I move on to the last, the last aspect of this. If you had a community of people, and we do have, and it can increase, if you had a community of people who were deep into the Word of God and obedient to it, who love one another, as I've described, who worship God with integrity, who invited the Holy Spirit to come and he came, people would want to join them. You would find growth would happen. And it sounds so great. It's like a no-brainer. Why wouldn't we want to go in that direction? And theoretically, we do. But I want to tell you, I want you to know, well, it's going to happen. The Lord says, he says here, the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. And we have to do that. I want us to do that. We're committed to it as a church to share God's salvation. But know this, it's going to be very costly and inconvenient and challenging and demanding and exciting. I wasn't there when you were born. I wasn't there when your parents took you home for the first time and walked from the car into their house. Beaming, no doubt. But I'm pretty sure of this. They had no idea with their first child how disruptive you were going to be. Life would never be the same again. And however much pleasure you brought them, you have brought sleepless nights into their world. You have brought no end of expense into their life. You disrupted their lifestyle from beginning to end. At first, it was probably just one room that you messed up, one corner of one room. But as you learned to crawl, you devastated two, three, four rooms. As you learned to stand up and reach higher, you broke more and more and more stuff. As you grew, you cost them a fortune in clothes, etc., etc. And it never stops. And it's normal. And it doesn't put people off having children. It's a miracle. <laughs> but we're just talking about one family here. What about God's family and multiples of new people coming in? How disruptive is that? Massively. Absolutely massively. They'll sit in your seat. You won't like that. They'll want music that you don't even like. You won't like that. They will want all sorts of things changed. And they will want you and your time and your kindness and your friendship. And this is God's kingdom because we're going to give it to them. This is what happens. I stand by the door often at the end of services. At the end of the previous service, when we have family work, we're seeing more and more and more and more children come in. And guys, that's an answer to prayer. But a couple of weeks ago, a new family arrived. And they introduced themselves. I couldn't believe it. Mum introduced herself and she had a child around her neck. 
Then another two children appeared, and then another two children appeared, and after a while I stopped counting. And, and a part of me was saying, this is great, we've been praying for families, we really want children. Another part of me was saying, oh, this is to myself, oh no, the rules say you have to have one volunteer for three children. This couple have just cost us like three volunteers. <laughs> but, but this is what you have to do for life, kingdom life, and we're going to do it. We are committed to it. Why? Because God has said, I'm going to build my church. This is the hope of the world. This is his treasure throughout the world. This is, this is what he wants. And it's what we want. I'm going to end with a, a story because it encouraged me. And um, it's, it's a true story. And it comes from this book, a book called Risen Indeed. It's quite an old book now, written by a man called Michael Bordeaux. And Michael studied Russian in Oxford. And his Russian teacher, a man called Dr. Zernov, sent him a letter which he'd received because he thought it would interest Michael. And in the letter, which was just a handwritten, plain, unadorned letter, it told a story of how the monks in Russia were being beaten up by the KGB and then they were being subjected to inhuman medical experiments and rounded up in lorries and dumped many hundreds of miles away. And the letter was very simple. And as he read it, Michael Bourdais felt he was hearing, really, the authentic voice of a persecuted church. And the letter was signed by two people, Varava and Pranina. Now, in August 1964, Michael decided to visit Moscow, and on his first evening, he met up with a few old buddies who explained that the persecutions were increasing, and in particular, they told him that an old church, beautiful church, of St. Peter's and St. Paul's had been demolished. And they suggested that he should go and have a look. He took a taxi there, and he couldn't actually look because a 12-foot wall had been erected all around what previously had been the site of a fabulous building. But as he looked at this fencing, he saw the outline of two figures who were peeping over the fencing. And as he saw them walk away from the fencing, he followed them and he caught up with them. And they asked him, who are you? And he said, well, I'm a foreigner. And I've come to find out what's happening here in the Soviet Union. And they took him back to a house of another woman who asked him why he'd come. And he explained his journey and he said he'd received a letter from the Ukraine via Paris. And when she asked who it was from, he said, it's from Varava and Pranina. And this amazing silence came into the room, followed by uncontrollable sobbing and he wondered what this was all about and when they'd gathered themselves together the woman whose house it was pointed at these two Russian women and said that is Pranina and that is Varava and the thing is the population of Russia is over 140 million 
The Ukraine, where the letter was written, is 1,300 kilometers from Moscow. Michael Bordeaux had flown from England six months after the letter was written. And he would never have met those two women if either party had arrived at that church at any other time than they did. God is going to build his church. He's committed to this project. He go to great lengths to make sure that the hope of the world is not snuffed out. Let's pray together. It'd be good just to stop and let the Holy Spirit talk to us individually. As we were praying before this service, one of the team praying felt it was very probable there'd be someone here, perhaps many, who have never felt part of a family, let alone God's family. And that it would be good to be reminded the door is open to belong to God's family. But I'd be very amazed if there weren't some of us here who needed to hear that obedience is required today, not enough to look back to a time when we walk close to God. And know this, in a moment, there's the opportunity to receive from the Lord's table. And we're told if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he'll forgive us. He will set us back on the path. But you need to decide for yourself you're up for that. And you need to mean it in your heart. And maybe, maybe it's as simple as inviting the Holy Spirit to come and refresh you again. Maybe that's something you haven't done for a bit. Or maybe it's worshipping the Lord in spirit and truth. And realizing that something maybe as simple as social media and time online has robbed you of time with God and it's time to say no I'm going to reprioritize but whatever it is it'd be so good for us to shape up at the beginning of this academic year and say Lord we want to be vibrant for you we want to be welcoming for you Lord Jesus thank you for your word and its impact on our lives thank you for the picture that's painted in Acts chapter 2 of your community it wasn't perfect but it did bring hope and we're not perfect Lord but we want to bring your hope we want to experience your love we want to know that we matter to you and we want you to know that you matter to us thank you Lord Jesus Amen